Good morning. Join me in your Bibles, if you would. Galatians chapter 6. If you've got a hardback Bible or a paperback or a Bible app, doesn't matter. We'll be in Galatians 6. Hopefully we're going to tackle five verses today, verses 6 through 10. And then, if I'm not hit by a bus or something this week, we're going to come back and finish this incredible letter from the Apostle Paul next week. A little preview of where we're going the week after that, I got a real special treat. A friend of mine, Mark Scarborough, and his wife, Katie, they have a long, long history. Both grew up here at the chapel. And they're currently serving as chapel-supported missionaries with Grace Ministries International in Lebanon. And Mark's going to be here and share with us at that weekend service on the 17th. And right after that, we've got a couple weeks, a very, very short little topical series we're going to do. Something's been on my heart. Today's almost kind of a preview of it. Been on the heart of the elders. We're going to talk about stewardship. And we're not just going to talk about money. Let me go ahead and warn you now. We're going to talk about decision-making more than anything, how we can be good stewards of the resources that God gives us. And then after that, man, we're going to have a party. We're going to have a big party on September 7th because that's when we're going to launch our new sermon series. And we are going to devote a big chunk of time, a couple years, I believe, into walking chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. And because that's going to be a party, we're going to have one that day. We're going to have a big lunch party right after the 1030 service over in the gym. We want to get everybody together and fellowship together. So hopefully you get a chance to be with your friends and meet some new people. And since it will be a Luke party, we want you to come dressed as your favorite Luke character. And that's going to be tough because really there aren't that many of them, let's be honest. You could come as Luke Skywalker, Luke Duke from Luke's a Hazard. You can come as Luke Perry. I don't know if that's a real character. You can be creative with that. You can dress as Dr. Luke, the author of the gospel that bears his name. I'll, I'll probably wear that costume. But here's the deal. If you come in costume, admission to that lunch will be free. There will be no cost to you whatsoever if you come in costume. So that's just a little preview of what's coming up today. And let's start dealing with what we're going to look at today. Okay, first, in case you didn't see it, let me make sure you understand no cost for the lunch, okay? <laughs> Come to that. If you can donate some money if you want, but that's going to be a party. We want to fellowship together, especially with multiple services over the summer, so many folks on vacation. We want to come together and launch together at that time. We want that to be a big party, whether you come in costume or not, but let's be honest, that'd be fun. So today, <laughs> in Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10, we are going to talk a little bit about money and I think we're going to talk about something that's awkward. It's always best if you just address that up front. But in general, we're going to talk about resources here. I don't want to beat around the bush. Paul's going to address three ways to use the resources that God gives us. And I think the application is broad enough that we'll look at everything. It's time, talents, treasures, those kind of things. In the back of my mind, I really feel like Paul's talking about finances here. And first in verse 6, he talks about supporting the teachers in a local congregation. In verses 7 to 8, he deals with our use of money and resources to build up the life in the Spirit that he's been talking about for chapters with these folks in Galatia instead of spending money and resources to invest in things of the flesh. And then in verses 9 and 10, he addresses using our resources to help others so we can be a blessing to others. And he specifically emphasizes other Christ followers. So that's what we're going to look at today. It's all kind of tied together by this one big principle. And if you're a farmer, this will come easier to you. You'll get it right away. We reap what we sow. Sowing is in proportion to reaping. And sowing is the work of planting. It's the time and effort and energy you take to ensure that there will be a harvest in the future to reap. Now, if you're like me and you're not a farmer, 
Let me put it this way, because I think everybody can grasp this sentiment. In virtually every context, in every situation in your life, you get out of it what you put into it, right? We may not like that, but, but that sounds pretty accurate. I think sometimes we may sit around wishing I could buy a lottery ticket for a dollar and I'll win a gazillion dollars. But things don't normally work that way. In your life, if you want to get good at speaking a foreign language or playing a sport or a musical instrument or you want to build strength or lose weight or whatever, we're not going to be able to put in just a minimal effort and see some kind of maximum result. Typically, the results we get in any undertaking like that, they really shouldn't come as a big surprise to us because we reap what we sow, right? If we're taking a test and we didn't study at all, we shouldn't be that surprised if we get a bad score because we get out of things what we put into them. Now, because we're sinful, fallen people, we live in this sinful world, then God's Word is going to continually remind us we're going to struggle with that principle. <laughs> He's always telling us we need to die to ourselves. We need to die to our selfishness. We need to put others before ourselves. And sometimes that hurts us in the reaping and sowing area. I heard a story one time about a wealthy business executive. He had a secretary that was just phenomenal. It's like his personal secretary. She was excellent at her job. She was so professional. And she always kind of went above and beyond the call all the time. And her boss noticed this. And honestly, he started to invest a little bit into her. And he learned about her life. And it turns out her home life was kind of a mess. She's married. And her husband was a construction worker. But he was a little shady. And he was in and out of work all the time really made it hard for them to make ends meet at home. But none of that affected her work. She, she was just a phenomenal employee. So over time, really over years, she kind of became like a daughter to this wealthy businessman. And she loved her job. She appreciated her boss. Things at home, they were always kind of tight. And so in the spring of one year, the boss had an idea. Secretary's husband was out of work again. And so this boss approached him, and he said, I want you to build a house. For a friend of mine. You be the contractor. You be in charge. I've already got the land picked out. It's on some acreage out in the country, out by my house. Beautiful setting. I've got plans. I know about how much it's going to cost. I think we should be able to do this for $250,000 for materials and labor. I want to hire you to do it. You run the project as long as you can finish it by Christmas. That's when I need to have it done. And he says, can you handle something like that? The guy says, yeah, I can do that. And so he sets about to build the house. And the secretary is thrilled because her husband has this steady gig. It's going to pay really well. She's so thankful to her boss. But instead of seeing it as a blessing, the shady contractor, he saw that as a great opportunity to pad his pocket. He says, well, if I'm in charge, and so he went to his buddies at the lumber supply and the plumbing supply and the electrical supply and all these places. And he said, hey, you invoice me for the top-of-the-line stuff, good quality stuff. I'll get paid, I'll come along later, and I'll pay you cash for substandard stuff. If you got like any defective stuff or whatever, I'll take that and I'll pocket the difference. I'll make a ton of money on this. So he did this throughout the process. And he finished the house in eight months. And you looked at the house, it looked great. You really couldn't tell by looking at it that he'd cut corners everywhere. But he finished on time. Once the contractor and his wife, they go to the company Christmas party. This wealthy boss always hosted this enormous extravaganza, and it was at the party where he gave everybody their Christmas bonuses. In years past, the secretary had gotten really generous bonuses. But this time she gets an envelope. It's got a little handwritten note in there. 
says, hey, you and your husband stay after the party and come see me. So they're kind of excited about it. They don't know what it is. They go, and, and this wealthy businessman holds up the keys to this new house. He hands it to him, and he says, I want to give this house to you. Surprise! <laughs> and the lady, you know, she's overwhelmed. She's in tears. She doesn't know. And the husband, he's in tears <laughs> for a different reason. <laughs> See, the boss wanted to bless them, wanted to thank his secretary for her great attitude, for her hard work. This construction worker guy shoots himself in the foot. He shoots his wife in the foot because now he's going to live in this house that's fallen down all around him. Why? Because we reap what we sow. We get out of things what we put into them. That's what Paul's trying to get us to understand in these following verses. We get to decide what our harvest is going to be based on the resources that we sow into things. And so you've got to remember in this context, this is about how we're going to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, specifically in relationships. That's what verses 1 to 5 of chapter 6 dealt with. How do we come along and bear burdens with people? How do we carry our own load? If we see somebody that has a burden that's way too big for them, how can we come along and support them? That's the context Paul's writing in. Now here in verses 6 to 10, we're going to see how we show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives through how we use the resources that God gives us. So let's start in verse 6. Here Paul writes, The one who has taught the Word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Now, I feel like right now would be an excellent time to take an offering. So we're going to have the deacons come down. No. No. That would just be awkward, wouldn't it? It'd be awesome, but it'd be awkward. We're not going to do that. Here at Cape Bible Chapel, you probably notice this. We don't take an offering. You notice that? If you're kind of new to the church, maybe you've even wondered about that before. Why don't we take an offering? If you want to take our next steps class, it's in the bulletin. It's coming up September 14th. Kind of go into some more detail on that. But let me just say this right now. At the core of the reason we don't ask for money because we never do. I shouldn't say that. One time a year, we take an offering. At Thanksgiving, we take a benevolence offering. We give it all away. But we don't ask for money because we don't want folks who are brand new to the church, we don't want folks who are non-believers to show up and go, that church is all about money. Because that's what they'll do as soon as you pass, whether they mean to or not. And so we don't do it. We don't want to be all about money. We want to be all about Jesus. We just count on the Holy Spirit working in the lives of believers to partner with the church. Holy Spirit will convict you, how am I going to come and partner with a church like that? That's what we want. And through the year, we'll sometimes give information about, well, here's where we are with our budget, and here's where we are with giving in comparison to it. But that's not as a reminder that you need to give some money. <laughs> it's a reminder that if you've already prayed and purposed about it, here's where we are. Here Paul's explaining, it's the responsibility of Christ followers to bear burdens. And he says specifically, to shoulder the financial support of the pastors and teachers in their lives. It's a little bit of an awkward verse for me to teach, but we see from Scripture that teachers, teachers are treated differently. James chapter 3 and verse 1 explains why not everybody should do it. Look at this verse up on the screen. James writes, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Why? Knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I always wear a coat or a sweater or a windshirt or something over my shirt when I teach. I don't know if you know why, but I'm going to explain that today, and I want to go ahead and tell you it's a little embarrassing and it's a little gross. I just want to get out in front of this right now. But I always wear something over my shirt 
Because if I didn't, those of you who are bold enough to sit up here in front, you'd be in the splash zone. <laughs> it could go bad for you. Have you ever gone to SeaWorld and you go see Shamu and they've got those seats? You're like, don't sit here, you're going to get wet. If I didn't wear the coat and I raised my arms, it could be bad <laughs> for Nick and Scott and these guys right up front here. Because I sweat like a faucet through my armpits while I teach. I just do. Because I get nervous. I get really nervous opening God's Word and sharing it with you guys. And I get kind of this flop sweat because of this verse in James. I get this enormous privilege to open God's Word and teach you, but I'm going to be held to a higher standard because of it. So I can't just wing it. (laughs) Knowing that makes me sweat. Teachers are held to a higher standard. We're treated differently in Scripture. So on your own, read this this week, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Because in that chapter... Paul explains that those who are given to the full-time ministry of teaching, they have a right to make their living from that. Then you read that whole chapter, and Paul goes on to explain he didn't take advantage of that right. But he's making the case in that chapter that he could have. Paul chose not to exercise the right, but he could have. You study Paul's life, and his policy was generally to preach and then not take money. He worked as a tent maker. But when you study it, that seems to be Paul's plan for while he was establishing churches, while he was out planning them. Because as soon as possible, in the life of these churches that he planted, it seems like he wanted to adopt a different policy. And that was a pattern where the local church would support their teacher, and Paul says many times, as a worker who was worthy of pay. We see this idea in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. He mentions it there in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 and 14. He mentions it here in Galatians. And it's also in 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 17 to 18. Paul writes this, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at, what? Preaching and teaching. He gives some illustrations. He says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, back in the day, all the elders in the church got a stipend. And so the ones who sweat buckets over this huge task of overseeing and teaching, Paul says they're worthy of a double stipend. So although Paul reserved the right not to take any support from the congregation, he's not saying, hey, you're off the hook. He's saying the congregation does not have the right to not offer to support the teacher. And here's what we're trying to say. The deal on this is it's not supposed to be like this grudging duty. It's not like this grim task. We want people to partnership with us. That's the deal. And the big reason that the use of our money here is given its own verse in verse 6 is because God's primary means for building his church, I think this is the number one way that he draws people to himself, is through proclaiming the word. And that's what the teacher does. And that's why I sweat like I do. In general, I sweat a lot. but, But that's why I sweat through my armpits so hard when I'm up here in front of you. I feel like y'all might know me a little better now. Teaching God's word is a serious deal. It really is. And many of you are so gracious, and you'll come to me, and you'll say really nice things after messages, sometimes even when I step on your toes really hard. And, and I guarantee you've heard me say this. If you come and say something, I want to be quick to give the credit where the credit is really due. You come and say something nice to me, and normally I'll say, God is so good that he can use even me. Because if the teaching lands, if we apply it, God gets the glory on that. 
He gets the credit. But what I want you to understand is I get credit too, and the credit I get is that this local church provides for me. It's an incredible thing. You provide for me and my family because I desire to be diligent in studying and preparing and presenting the Word. And it's God's Word. Thank the Lord. It's not my Word. It's His Word. Now, there have been times, and this is always neat, somebody will come to me and they'll say something like, wow, James, I felt like you were preaching just to me. That message was just for me. God gave you that sermon and told you to preach it right at me. Has that ever happened to you? You see something like that happen? Why do you think that is? You think I got a text during the week from your wife or your husband or your parents? Hey, James, when you're preaching that point, make sure and stare, right? See, <laughs> he really needs to hear this. No, that's not how it works at all. The thing that makes you think I'm speaking directly to you is that someone is speaking <laughs> directly to you. And it just happens because I'm reading God's Word, or it's through what God has directed me to share through the Holy Spirit. God's Word has insight into our heart and our mind. And so if you've ever been in that spot where you think me or some preacher or teacher is speaking directly to you, it's because the Holy Spirit is pursuing you and speaking directly to you through the proclamation of the Word. That's how it works. And so the Apostle Paul who only took money one time while he was out doing ministry that we can see in Scripture, in Acts chapter 18. He'd come and start these churches, and then he'd leave. And then he'd leave a man in charge, and his practice seemed to be telling the church, hey, honor that man. Take care of that man, because he's going to be the one who's going to faithfully proclaim God's word to you. Now, sadly, we've seen this not work, right? On both sides of the equation. We've seen churches that fold. And if that's a church that was having faithful teaching and they folded for whatever reason, then that's a shame because now there's no more teaching. And then probably far too often we've seen it on the other extreme where you see somebody who's teaching and honestly the reason they're doing it is to get wealthy. They're greedy. That one kind of makes my blood boil. But, but both of those are honestly just a shame. But the fact that this strategy can go wrong doesn't mean it's not the strategy that we're supposed to follow. Because the whole idea that Paul is advancing here, it would have been really novel even at the time it was written. Because back when he was writing this, back in the day, Jews had to pay taxes to support their priests. And Gentiles had to pay fees or they would make a vow to support the people in their religions. And Paul's saying, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. As part of living by the Spirit, as part of bearing burdens, here's what I want Christ followers to do, partner partner with your church and support teachers and share all good things with them. And I just want to say this personally. I just want to say thank you because I feel like I have been so blessed by the Holy Spirit through the people in this body who apply this verse. I mean, God provides, but he does it through you, and I thank you for that. So many people here get that. And it's not just me, honestly. It's the people who support Jeremy as he teaches our kids. Support Andy as he teaches students. It's not just me, and we get this. So thank you as a, as a local body, for sure. And move on before I cry. Let's move on to verses 7 and 8. These are really broad in their application, too. Again, I still think Paul's thinking about financial stuff. But his main point is, each sower decides what their harvest is going to be. And Paul writes, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh 
will from the flesh reap, watch out, corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, when the Bible says do not be deceived, that's a big heads up for sure. We're supposed to pay attention there. Because God's Word is getting ready to address some area where we think we're right, but we're actually wrong. So Paul says don't be deceived. Why? Because God cannot be mocked. Well, who would try to mock God? And that's foolish, right? We, we can fool other people. We can fool ourselves. Isn't that what we do when we buy a lottery ticket, really? Think I can, I can sow a little and I'll reap a lot? We can fool ourselves, but it says we can't fool God. Paul's saying you don't want to do that. He will not be mocked. Now, what on earth do you think Paul's thinking about here? And in context, I really think it's these folks in Galatia who were trying to mock God through legalism or through too, taking too much liberty and having a license to sin. We said those are kind of the two big errors that we saw over and over again in this body. It's trying to earn salvation by honestly buying your way to it or, or by trying to do something, anything enough that you'd earn God's favor. Isn't that what the Judaizers were teaching? Hey, you need Jesus plus you need to be circumcised. You need Jesus and you need to follow the Jewish law. That's what will earn you your salvation. And Paul made the case all through the letter, if somebody tries to do that, they would attempt to earn their salvation, then really they're enslaving themselves. It says there's no way they'll walk in the freedom that God desires for them. And then there's another way that the Galatians could have been mocking God. We said that was through misinterpreting their own liberty and just seeing it as a license to sin because, well, God will forgive us. It's that idea that because of what Christ accomplished on the cross, well, now we can do whatever we want. And there'll be no consequences. So here in verses 7 and 8, Paul says, no, don't be deceived because God cannot be mocked. And maybe we've never thought of it that way, but that's, that's truly what legalism is. Legalism's mocking God. If we practice it, we're saying, well, I don't really have any need for the cross. I don't really need Jesus. I, I don't really need his death and his resurrection because I can figure this out on my own. Sounds like mockery when I say it that way, doesn't it? We can't save ourselves. Period. That's mocking God. And taking too much license is mockery too. Because if we do that, we're saying, hey, I can live however I want. There won't be any consequences. That's a mockery of God and his word. So Paul sets that tone here. He says, don't mock God. And then he explains why. And he gives this universal truth. He says, whatever we sow, that's what we're going to reap. Now here's where I struggle with this. And I want to be really, really practical today. Because I know I've done this in my own life. And I know there are well-meaning people who I don't see hearts, but, but I know them a little bit. And they say they love Jesus. And they've done the same thing that I've done. We're involved in a church. We're with other Christ followers. And we say, hey, I really want to grow spiritually. And then for some unknown reason, we act like, well, maybe one day that'll just happen. Maybe I'll just wake up tomorrow and I'll just be incredibly godly. I'll be so Christ-like without sowing anything into it. Let me give you an example. And this one may work for you, it may not. But I bet there's an example of something like this in your life if you think about it. Growing up, I wasn't very handy. I really wouldn't have trusted me to fix anything or build anything. I, just, I wasn't wired for that. But then I got married. And I married the most beautiful woman in the world, way out of my league, but I didn't know she also happened to have the most talented, smartest father in the world. My father-in-law can fix 
anything. He can build anything. He can diagnose anything. He pretty much owns all the tools. <laughs> and and he's, he's an incredibly humble guy. I don't know if you know my father-in-law or not. He's never once made me feel bad about being me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but he's just a great guy. And, and so I didn't know it. I didn't know that going in. And so I get married and I begin to notice, you know, if something would break or, or something needed fixing around the house, Christina would call her dad and he'd come and fix it. And that kind of hurt my pride. <laughs> and so that motivated me to say, well, I want to be able to do stuff like that. Well, how was I going to do it? I, I wasn't going to wake up the next day and know how to do it, right? I had to invest something in it. So I started paying attention when people would fix things. And, and I watched people lay tile and lay flooring and hang sheetrock. And, and I watched and tried to learn. And then I tried on my own and failed miserably several times. And I learned from all those things. That's what it takes to do that. If I want to get better at something along the way, I'm going to have to invest in it, right? Time and resources. I don't care what your example is, but, but it's going to have to work the same way, right? If you want to understand calculus, you're not going to go to bed tonight and all of a sudden wake up tomorrow knowing how to do it. If you want to learn a foreign language, praying about it, wishing for it, not going to happen. You're going to have to invest some time. There's steps you're going to have to take. That's what Paul's talking about when he says we're going to carry our own load. Now here's the practical part, and I'm not going to tell on anybody by name, but let me just say this to you. I've met with so many people in this body, and whether it's somebody comes and has a question about the Bible or a question about theology or sometimes it's in a counseling situation. They'll come and they'll sit in my office and the first thing they'll say, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but one of the first things they'll say after we exchange pleasantries and I'll pray, they'll say, hey, I got this question out of the Bible or whatever and, and here's the deal, I know I don't read my Bible the way I should. Whoa, time out. <laughs> Let's stop right there. No, I don't when I'm meeting with them. We, we go ahead and talk through whatever the problem is. But, but if we come and that's the space where we are, then why don't we address that first? Because that's a load that each one of us is supposed to be able to carry, right? We get to decide what our harvest is going to be. So it may not be this example I'm going to use, reading the Bible. It may be something else for you, praying or serving or whatever it is. But let's pick a way that we can address how we carry our own load, how we reap our own harvest. But if this is the one, if we don't feel like we read our Bible the way we should, let's be honest, we're not going to wake up tomorrow and pick it up and read it cover to cover, are we? We can all agree on that. So what if for the sake of an example, I'm going to ask you right up here today, would you commit to reading your Bible five minutes a day? Just five minutes a day. Not going to be quite that easy. <laughs> if you do it five minutes a day, I'll let you off on that if you promise me, if you get stuck or if you have a question, you can stop. I don't care if it's the first verse you read. If you have a question, you can stop if you will commit to call somebody or email somebody or text somebody and ask them the question that you have and start a dialogue of some kind. Does that sound so hard? Let's do the math on this. And remember, I don't really like math, but, but in this example, I like the math because it doesn't have an agenda. It just gives us some numbers. If we read for five minutes a day, for 365 days a year, that's 1,825 minutes. It's just over 30 hours. I can't answer this question for you. You answer it, honestly. Are you reading your Bible 30 hours a year right now? 
you just commit to reading five minutes a day, this could be a big win for you, for some of us. And that would be fantastic. But in my heart, here's what I think is going to happen. Here's really honestly what I'm praying is going to happen. There's going to be many days, if you read for five minutes, and you're just an average reader, let's say you read 300 words a minute, which I think is probably a little low. But let's use that number. If you did that, you'd read 1,500 words a day. Now let me put this in context. Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia has just over 3,200 words in it. Six chapters. It's taken us seven months to walk through it. If you're reading five minutes a day, 300 words a minute, you could read it all in just over two days. That'd be great in and of itself. But don't you think this is going to happen? If you're reading and you're really diving in, don't you think you're going to stop and ask some questions? If you pick up the first day and you're reading and you make it to Galatians 2.20, which would be a stretch, but if you make it there and you read what Paul writes, that he says he's been crucified with Christ, he no longer lives Christ. Christ lives in him. If you blow by that, stop, please, and ask the question, man, what does that look like? And if you just engage somebody in the body, a friend, the person you're in to make initiative with, whatever, if you'd really dig deep and marinate on that, can you imagine what God would do in your life? Can you imagine what God would do in this church? We spent 365 days a year having God-sized thoughts like that one. That's reaping eternal life. If we have these questions, if we're reading our Bible, if we're finding one person, I promise you God's going to do something incredible. Now, here's the deal. It's a challenge. If you say to me, well, James, I just don't have time. I don't have time. And maybe your example isn't reading the Bible. It's praying or serving or whatever. I just can't make time for that. Again, I can't answer this question for you. But if you're doing that and you've got like three favorite TV shows, <laughs> I'm not saying you don't love Jesus. I'm not saying that. I can't know that. I'm just saying, and I'll certainly include myself in this because I know by my actions I show this same thing sometimes. There must be some things we love more than Jesus. And if it's TV, <laughs> I mean, let's be honest, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. The question Paul asks is, are we sowing to eternal life? Or are we sowing to feed our flesh? When we sow our resources, that's our time and our money, to the flesh, the text says we're in trouble. We'll reap what the flesh has to offer. It's not a good list. Paul just says corruption, but I mean, we know that's enslavement, rebellion, hopelessness, envy, greed, pride, are we trying to keep up with the Joneses and how we invest our time and our resources? Are we just simply selfish in how we sow? We only want what we want? Are we honestly sowing to eternal things? Things that are about life, things we keep talking about over and over here at the chapel. Are we sowing to outreach, telling other people about Jesus? Are we sowing to disciple-making? Are we sowing to serving? Because if we invest in those things that please the Spirit, hear me, we're going to reap a harvest that's about spiritual growth. It's a harvest that's going to last. Paul's teaching, we're going to reap what we sow. One last point. 
verses 9 to 10. We're supposed to help others with our resources. Here Paul says this, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and he says, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. And this is real neat right at the start, because Paul changes tenses right there at the beginning. He's been writing in first person singular. He switches to first person plural. Why does he do that? Well, you know, because we, we've studied this together. At this point in time, Paul needs some encouragement. He's been laboring with these believers in Galatia. He's sowed a ton into these people. What's his return been so far? Many of them are straying away. He, he's preaching this to himself, so he won't grow weary. We need to do that sometimes. I heard a story one time about a young dad, had a little toddler child, and he had to take him to the grocery store. So the dad goes, and he takes him, and he puts him in a little seat there in front of the cart, and he's basically just sprinting up and down the aisles at the grocery store. And he's kind of talking to himself. He's kind of muttering. He's kind of whispering. And he's saying, we can do this, Billy. We can, we can make it, Billy. Just a little bit longer, Billy. Just hang in there, Billy. There's an older, grandmotherly type lady there in the grocery store. She sees him going through, and, and the little kid's a champ. He's a really good kid. And so she ends up behind him in the line at the checkout. And so she taps the dad on the shoulder. and says, hey, I just want you to know, your son Billy, he's a really good little kid. He's very well behaved. You must be so proud. The dad turned around and he said, my boy's name is Josh. I'm Billy. <laughs> Sometimes we've got to preach to ourselves, right? <laughs> That's what Paul is doing here. We can become discouraged with spiritual sowing because sometimes it's a really, really long time before the harvest comes. Now, Paul's saying for sure, know that when you sow into the life of the Spirit, you're going to see a reward. But we may not even be around on this earth to see it. Paul does something real neat here. He says, in due time, we will see the harvest if we don't grow weary. And he does a neat thing with that word for time there. In verse 9, he uses the Greek word keros. And he's talking about the proper time to reap a harvest. If you read in John 4, it talks about harvest time. It normally said, hey, you plant, you come back to reap, it's about four months. And so Paul says you've got to reap your harvest at the right time. You don't go at two months. You don't go at six months. You go when you're supposed to. But then in verse 10, he uses the same Greek word, keros, and this time it's translated as opportunity. Because in verse 10, he's talking about the right time to sow. Paul's saying if we walk around missing opportunities to sow, to plant our seed, then there's not going to be any harvest. There'll be no reaping at all. Why? Because we get out of things what we put into them. So we shouldn't grow weary of bearing burdens. We shouldn't grow weary of doing good because that's how we're going to sow what's going to be the harvest down the road. Now in verse 10, Paul's indicating there's no way out here. As Christ followers, we have a responsibility to do good because of the identity of the man that we take our identity from. I already said I don't like math, but, but here's an equation that even I can follow. God is good all the time, and Jesus is God. And if we say we're Christ followers, then we're identifying with God. We're supposed to do good. As individual Christ followers, we're supposed to be the church. We're not supposed to grow weary of sowing 
good things, things that build up the life of the Spirit. But you know we do. Paul's preaching to himself here. Now, our benevolence, how we use our resources, it shouldn't generally be restricted. Now, this is a sermon not wholly about this, but in context, you've got to at least say, if somebody isn't carrying their own load, you know, if they've become a professional mat layer, then yeah, we may restrict benevolence to that person in order to love them the right way. But generally, Paul's saying, don't do it. Don't grow weary of doing good. And one of the things he says is we're supposed to do this good to those of the faith first. Now, that's kind of a tricky verse, but I just want to tell you, I think Paul's just being really, really practical about our priorities there. If you think of it this way, think of a local church. What if they purpose to spend all of their money, every bit of their resources, and they pick a worthy cause to say, hey, we're going to alleviate hunger in some out-of-the-place, you know, third-world country. We're going to alleviate hunger there. If they're going to give all their resources to that, then they're going to have a really finite window (laughs) to be able to accomplish that before they fold as a church, right? Because if they don't invest in supporting a faithful teacher, they don't invest in sowing and reaping, they're not going to be able to grow as a healthy spiritual body. They're going to fold. They'd cease to exist. And so then their efforts in this certain place, they're non-existent, right? Maybe you can think of this easier. You think of it in terms of your own home. What if I have neighbors, my my legitimate next-door neighbors, and they're starving to death? What if I go and take all of my food to give to them? Well, then my family is now starving to death. Paul's teaching here we have to have priorities. You've got to meet your family needs first. You've got to meet the needs of your church family first. It's not to the exclusion of these other things that are also about building life in the Spirit. Paul's just saying have your priorities right. Now, again, we don't have time to completely flesh this out today, but you know for sure this is where we start asking questions that we really can't answer for other people. We can only answer them for ourselves. But we look around and we ask, hey, does that person need that really nice sports car? Hey, do they need three cars? Do they need four cars? Hey, does that church need that new expansion they're building? Do they need that new building? Hey, does that person need that lake house for the summer? And since we don't see hearts... (laughs) I don't think we're in the position to ask those questions. I know that we still do. I'll just circle back to Paul's first point here, just real quick in verse 6. And I'll tell you this, just honestly. Ever since I began full-time ministry, 14 years ago, back in the year 2000, I've taken one big vacation with my family where I paid for everything. We saved up for three years and we went to Disney. I think it's a requirement. I'm not sure. We, We made those memories. Every other vacation... I sat and thought about this this week. Every other vacation that I can think of that I've taken, I've been able to go on with my family because someone else that loves the Lord and loves me and my family made it happen because <laughs> they had a timeshare, they had a condo, or they had a house at the beach, at the lake, or whatever, and they let us go and stay for free. They've loved me and shared blessings with me. And I know all these people, they've shared blessings with lots of others in full-time ministry as well. Paul's point here is not to compare and try and assess what someone else should do with their resources. We're supposed to evaluate our own circumstances. We can do that. I mean, let's be honest. If my family's needs are met, 
and then I go out and just waste money? I'm a bad steward of the resources God gives to me, and then I'm convicted by the Holy Spirit? And he may use somebody to do that. He may, he may have somebody show me that. But if the conviction comes from him, and he shows me, wow, you could have used those resources to apply this verse in your life. You could have done good to all people. And if I had my priorities right, and I'm doing it wrong, then I need to repent. I need to change my priorities and apply what Paul's teaching here. But that's something that each one of us has to evaluate on our own. And it would be my hope that we'd invite godly, trusted people into our lives in discipling relationships who could maybe walk through that with us, but it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. It's not mine. Just one practical consideration out of that before we close. If we are limited in our resources, and honestly, I don't know (laughs) a whole lot of folks who aren't, but if we have to be prayerful about the things we're going to support as Christ followers, then it just makes a lot of sense to support the church and to support other Christian organizations first because if we're honest, typically non-Christ followers won't. Normally non-believers won't give to believing organizations, right? I mean, occasionally they might for a fundraiser or a mission trip or something like that. But just practically supporting the Lord's work, that needs to come from us, (laughs) from the body of believers. So there's tons of practicality to what Paul's teaching here. So that's it. Three areas of focus for the churches in Galatia and for us <laughs> and how we're supposed to use our resources to show the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, to come along and bear burdens. All three of those tied together by this one big overriding principle in how we use them. We're going to reap what we sow. We'll get out of it what we put into it. And then one huge prayer for me. I'm praying this all the time because you hear me up here every week over and over, talking about our need to get connected, our need to be in small groups. We need to be part of this make initiative. We need to find a place to serve. Why do you think I'm doing that? This is why. Because when we do those things, what we're really doing is sowing. We're planting seeds in things that will build up the life of the Spirit. Because if we're thinking one day, all of a sudden we're going to wake up and that's going to happen, We're going to wake up and have these deep friendships where folks will come along with us and shoulder our burdens. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen without us sowing the seeds. We'll get out of it only what we put into it. I guarantee it. Let me pray for us. Daddy, thank you for the opportunity to open your word. God, thank you for being in a church that desires to faithfully proclaim your word every time we get together. Oh. God, thank you for using me. I just feel so unworthy sometimes, but I I trust that you are good and you will work through me if I can get out of my own way. God, thank you for this challenge. Pray that we will desire to meet you in your word even if it's five minutes a day, even if it's just till we have a question. And God, I pray that everybody in this body would be connected to the place where they would know somebody they could go to ask a question out of Scripture. If it's one of the elders, if if it's me, if I get 600 emails this week, I would be so overjoyed. 
God, help us to do this well for your glory. We love you and we trust you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.